Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Jinkies. My name is Ashley Deering. I think I forgot to say that in my last episode. Not that it matters, but you ought to know. So I'm filming this ahead of time. I'm not sure what the Instagram count is at for followers. If it's already hit 100, then I will probably be posting details about a giveaway down in the description. If it's not, don't forget that I will do a giveaway if I hit 100 followers on Instagram. You know the drill. Like and subscribe, follow, all that good stuff. I'll remind you at the end. Don't worry. There's not a pop quiz. Today we are going to be talking about, drumroll please, excellent, the Amityville Horror. The DeFeo family moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, New York in 1974. The family consisted of the father, Ron DeFeo, the mother, Louise DeFeo, and their children, Ron DeFeo Jr., 18-year-old Don. 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew. In the early morning of November 13, 1974, Ron DeFeo Jr. woke up, grabbed a 35 caliber gun from within the home on Ocean Avenue, and shot his whole family in their beds while they slept. These murders are part of what inspired the books and the film The Amityville Horror. Before we dive into the supernatural horror of this story, we need to go over Ron DeFeo Jr.'s life. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was born September of 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. He was the oldest of the five children in the DeFeo family. His father, Ron Sr., worked at a Brooklyn Buick dealership, providing a good living for the family. However, Ronald Sr. was known to be very authoritative and domineering. Is that how you say it? Authoritative? Author- That's what we're going with. He was known to have very hot-tempered fights with Louise, as well as with the children. The worst of his temper was taken out on Ron Jr. This only made life harder for Ron Jr., as he was also heavily bullied as he got older in school. As time went on, he began to physically act out, especially against his father. The family took him to a psychiatrist out of concern, but he swore he didn't need help. The therapy, in turn, did nothing. In place of therapy, the family began bribing him with gifts and money. They hoped this would encourage good behavior. Unfortunately, it only made it worse. At 17, he became addicted to LSD and heroin and was expelled from school due to violence towards the other students. The family continued to try the reward system to encourage good behavior and even got him a job at the dealership alongside his father. In addition to having a job and a paycheck at the dealership, his father gave him a weekly stipend. There were no expectations in return. Ron Jr. used this money to upgrade the car that his parents gifted him, as well as his gun collection and, of course, drugs and alcohol. His behavior obviously worsened at a rapid rate. He began to threaten his friends with violence and even shot his father during an argument at point-blank range but the gun jammed. By 1974, Ron Jr. was increasingly displeased with his meager salary that he felt he earned at the dealership. He devised a plan to begin embezzling money. In late October of that year, he was to deposit upwards of $20,000 in the bank for the dealership. Ron Jr. planned a fake robbery with his friend who he planned to split the money with. Everything went perfectly until eventually the police showed up at the dealership with questions for Ron. Of course, he was robbed. He refused to comply when they asked him to come identify possible suspects. And when his father questioned why he refused to help the police, Ron Jr. threatened to kill him. A few weeks later, Ron Jr. killed his whole family in 15 minutes. After he was done, he showered, got dressed for work, took his bloody clothes and the gun in a pillowcase, which he then dumped in a storm drain on his way to work. He arrived for work at the dealership by 6 a.m. While at work, he called home, pretending not to know why his father hadn't shown up for work that day. He then left work early to go and see some friends. He made it a point to tell them he couldn't reach his family at home and that he was worried. So his friends went with him to the home, and of course, 
he feigned surprise at finding his entire family murdered in their beds. The cops were, of course, called, and they began to question Ron Jr. about possible suspects. He immediately threw out a mafia hitman's name, Louis Fellini, citing an old grudge that Fellini had with the family due to business at the dealership. Ron Jr. said he stayed up late watching TV and then left for work. He said he believed his family was alive when he left. The police then placed Ron Jr. in protective custody as they searched for a suspect. As they searched the house, however, they found an empty ammo box under Ron Jr.'s bed. This ammo went to the Marlin gun used to kill the family. The police then begin to rearrange the timeline. Realizing the family was still in their pajamas and in their beds, they determined that the murder most likely happened in the very early hours of the morning. This, of course, places Ron Jr. at the scene of the crime. Once police began to question DeFeo about this, his story changed. At first, he said, Fellini arrived at the home in the early hours of the morning and an accomplice dragged DeFeo from room to room as Fellini shot and killed all his family members. He continued to spin his tail until finally he stopped and said, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. His trial did not start until almost a year later on October 14th of 1975. His attorney attempted the insanity plea and DeFeo touted that he heard voices in the house that told him to kill his family. A psychiatrist for the defense supported the claim, saying that DeFeo was neurotic and had dissociative disorder. However, the psychiatrist for the prosecution proved that DeFeo suffered from antisocial personality, meaning that he was motivated by a self-centered attitude, but fully aware of his actions. The jurors ended up agreeing with this diagnosis and found DeFeo guilty of six counts of second-degree murder, for which he was sentenced to six life terms. All of his appeals have been denied, and he is serving his time in Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beckham, New York. In 02, he recanted his voice's testimony. He said his parents were abusive and that he killed his family while he was high on heroin and drunk. Fast forward to December of 1975. The Lutz family moved into the house after it sat vacant for nearly 13 months. The family consisted of George and Kathy Lutz, who had been married on July 4th of that same year, as well as three kids from Kathy's previous marriage. The furniture from the DeFeo family was still in the house, causing an additional $400 to be added to the purchase price, $88,000. The Lutz family ended up only staying in the home for a total of 28 days before fleeing the home in the middle of the night. The family stated paranormal activity began immediately upon moving in. George Lutz reported that he would wake up every morning between 3-3.15, which was the estimated time of the DeFeo murders. They also alleged that they had a fly problem. Now, this does not mean like they get some flies in the summer. It means that there were hordes of flies in this house in the middle of winter on Long Island. Kathy Lutz stated that she would have vivid dreams about the DeFeo murders almost nightly, and both she and George said that while awake, they would see shadows of demon figures with parts of their heads missing as if they had been shot. Kathy stated there were also unseen entities that would take over her body. George Lutz would wake up to the sound of a door slamming, though no one else could hear it. And he would also wake up in different places than his bed, which was where he fell asleep every night. The Lutz's daughter, Missy, had an imaginary friend she called Jody. For a time, the parents could not see the friend until eventually they did. It was a demonic, red-eyed pig. Like, imagine a Halloween decoration with glowing red eyes. Yeah, that was that was her imaginary friend. One of the Lutz's sons were trying to open a window, and it would not open for anyone. Suddenly, it flew open by itself, and the son ran over to the window and placed his hands on the sill. The window then slammed down, crushing his hands. They all began to struggle to open the window until eventually it opened by itself again. Kathy took her son to the kitchen to treat his wounds. As he sat at the table, an entity appeared and passed through him. In a matter of a few blinks, his hands were fully healed, as though it had never even happened. Kathy recalls red welts appearing on her chest as she levitated at least two feet above her bed. 
green slime would ooze from the walls, which originally the Lutz had attributed to water damage. A crucifix on their wall would regularly turn itself upside down. The morning of New Year's Day, there were large cloven footprints leading away from the house from one of the windows. The final night, the Lutzes were in the house. The boys were in their beds. These beds are very old-fashioned, and they were bolted to the floor. While the boys were sleeping... The beds ripped themselves up out of the floor and began levitating, slamming into one another. As the boys screamed, George woke up, but he could not get himself out of bed as an invisible force, as he put it, kept him from moving. He said he looked over to Kathy to see if she was getting up to go to the boys, but she was also levitating and appeared to have aged almost 90 years past what her age really was. That night, they called a priest to bless the house. That priest claimed that as he sprinkled holy water throughout the home, he heard a very masculine voice shout, get out. Before leaving the premises, that priest came down with a high fever and blisters on his palms resembling the marks of stigmata. I'll put a picture somewhere here of what stigmata actually is. The Lutz family fled the home that night and never returned. They ended up selling it remotely. There are mixed reports on whether or not another family have been affected by any hauntings since the Lutz family moved out. Some sources say the entity followed the Lutz, and others claim that every family before them and every family after have been haunted by the same thing. Not long after leaving the house, George and Kathy Lutz met Jay Anson, a well-known writer about behind-the-scenes books about films and actors. The Lutz submitted a lengthy tape recording to him, equaling about 45 hours of their encounters. He used this to write the famous book, The Amityville Horror. The book was published in 1977 and has since sold over 11 million copies. The book was made into a movie in 1979 and became the most successful independent movie of all time. It made 86 million at the box office in 1979 terms, with additional millions coming from video sales, syndication, and the like. The 2006 remake of the movie made even more. In the early 80s, another author met with the Lutzes to write about their life after the haunting. They agreed, so The Amityville Horror 2 was published in 1983. This also became another international bestseller. This story has been told so many times and in so many different ways, it's hard to see the real story. What can be said is the original book written by Jay Anson was, of course, embellished. The book itself is only based on the tapes provided by the Lutzes. These tapes, however, have never been released. The Lutzes stand by that they did not dream up the whole encounter. An attorney deeply involved in the DeFeo murder case created a lawsuit against the Lutzes, saying they concocted the whole story. He, of course, had no evidence to support his claims, and the lawsuit was thrown out. The Lutzes stood by their story for the rest of their lives. In 1979, they both agreed to take a polygraph test about the events, and they both passed. In a documentary on the History Channel 25 years later, their story did not change, and they stood by everything they said. People have been trying to debunk the Amityville horror since its inception. It's proving fundamentally impossible to prove the Lutzes story absolutely false. Since, and I quote AmityvilleNow.com, the story is personal matters of perception and nightmares. The Lutzes can't be proven or disproven, only believed or disbelieved. To quote AmityvilleNow.com again, true horror stories were not the moneymakers they are today at the time of the Lutz's haunting, making it unlikely for them to predict the story's success. The Lutz's didn't have a background in film or production. They also did not become wealthy from the story's fame. While they did receive some royalties, it was never a ton of money and it faded quickly. They actually struggled financially for the rest of their lives, both as a family and individuals. The Cromarty family purchased the home in 1970 
1977 for far less than the Lutzes did. They stated there were no broken fixtures, strange smells, or apparitions. But, like I said, it was stated that the Lutzes claimed that the haunting followed them, and the Lutzes made this statement before the house even sold. There has been no reported hauntings in the home since 1977. It has been fully renovated, and the address has been changed. So I got a couple theories on what the Amityville horror might actually be. The Lutzes risked their lives and the lives of their children for a never-before-seen get-rich-quick scheme that failed. The family suffered from shared hysteria or delusions despite having no history of mental health or addiction problems. The family was haunted by a force that drove them mad, forcing them to flee and then following them forever, never allowing them to recover. I will leave you with two different quotes, one from the Cromarty family who purchased the home in 1977. They say, The quiet village of Amityville, Long Island, has been made infamous by a hoax. It will possibly never be the same. It is Long Island's equivalent of Watergate. None of us would be here today if a responsible publisher and author had not given credibility to two liars and allowed them the privilege of putting the word true on a book in which in all actuality is a novel. The credibility of the hoax stems from using a charlatan Catholic priest who has been banned from performing his religious duties by the Diocese of Rockville Center, the equivalent of disbarment of a lawyer. The charlatan priest has been involved with a complicity to lie and therefore deserves no credibility and should be dealt with accordingly. I will remind you that these people bought this home. They just wanted to live a normal life and I'm sure they are bombarded almost daily or at least were about, oh my God, is your house haunted? Do you see anything? X, Y, Z, whatever have you. So I get why they might be a little upset and be a little rude about it. The last quote I will leave you with is from George Lutz himself. I believe this has stayed alive because it's a true story. It doesn't mean that everything that has ever been said about it is true. It's certainly not a hoax. It's real easy to call something a hoax. I wish it was. It's not. And that is my rendition of the Amityville Horror. It's one of my favorite supernatural stories of all time. It's one of the most famous supernatural stories of all time. There is so much information on the internet. It's insane. There are so many movies. There's multiple books. Give it a quick Google search. I promise you won't be disappointed. Thank you so much for listening or watching, whichever the case may be. Again, don't forget to like and subscribe. Follow my social media, which I'll put right here and in the description down below. I will also put Monday's episode somewhere around here if I can figure out how to do that. That's that. That is all she wrote for now. Just a reminder, I'm posting three times a week, so make sure you Tune in on Friday, 6 p.m. as always for the next episode. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time.